Well, hello again, I'm Tony Payne, and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth, where we bring the truth of Christ crucified to bear, the scriptural truth, on pretty much any and every aspect of what it means to live as Christ people and minister to others as Christ people in this world. And in today's episode, it's more a focus on our ministry to other people, and in particular, our interactions with other people around the gospel. I did some training recently in a session with the Campus Bible Study staff about apologetics and what apologetics is and how it relates to evangelism. And as I did this and prepared for it, I realized that one of the main problems was that we just use the word apologetics to refer to quite a range of different things these days. And so to clear the ground a little and to clarify things, I put forward seven types of apologetics. Or, it might be more accurate to say, seven kinds of Christian speech or interaction that are sometimes called apologetics. In any case, in this week's edition and next week's, we're going to look at these seven types of apologetics, these seven kinds of interaction, and see how understanding them more clearly, including their benefits and pitfalls, can help us to share the gospel more clearly and faithfully with our world. Well, let's start by clarifying that apologetics, whatever it might be, is not evangelism. Evangelism is a particular thing. It's the proclamation and explanation of the historical truth of the gospel. That God sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins, that he raised him from the dead to be the Lord and judge of his eternal kingdom, and that he now calls on all people everywhere to submit to Christ in repentance and faith. Or something like that, some summary like that. You can see boxes four to six of two ways to live for a very good summary, of course. But gospel proclamation, pure and simple like that, is not the only kind of interaction we have with people. There's conversation and reasoning and debate that happens. There's explanation, both pre- and post-evangelism. And we've come to label much of this extra-evangelistic interaction as apologetics. Now, I'm not sure how far the word apologetics can actually stretch. In fact, strictly speaking, I think only perhaps two of the seven types of interaction I'm about to outline are really apologetics per se. That doesn't mean that the other five aren't valid or useful. They very well may be. But some clarity on this will really help us, especially since a common tendency these days is for apologetics to kind of expand and colonize the space where evangelism should be, but more on this below. To understand and conceptualize these seven kinds of apologetics, I'm going to use the moving to the right concept that we looked at a few editions ago, or at least the left half of that diagram, which focuses on evangelizing and engaging with non-Christian people to move them towards Christ, towards coming to know and trust and serve Christ. And the different kinds of apologetic interaction that we're going to look at occupy different points along this moving to the right kind of spectrum. The first three types are kind of in the evangelism zone itself. The fifth, sixth, and seventh types I'm going to talk about, I'm going to deal with those next week, are more down the engage end of the spectrum. And type 4 is in another location altogether. Of course, classifying things like this is helpful in theory and it helps us to think things through. It's often never as neat in actual conversation or in a sermon that we might preach that 
could contain a number of these different kinds of interactions and approaches within the same sermon. But categorizing them and clarifying them in this way hopefully will help us understand what we're doing, when and why. So let's start with the first kind of interaction that I'm calling persuasion. Now, if you could have the diagram in front of you now that I've got in the text version of the post, you'd see that the persuasion form of interaction or apologetics sits right in the middle of the evangelize zone. And if you want to see those diagrams, just head across to the website, that's thepainfultruth.online, and to the text version of this edition, and you'll see them there. If you could see the diagram, you could see that it puts persuasion right in the middle of the evangelize zone, if I can put it like that, of actually explaining the meaning of the death and resurrection of Christ. And as we do this, we'll often provide various arguments and reasons to support our proclamation. We'll persuade people with these things, much as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, for example, where he argues that the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection is grounded in God's plans revealed in Scripture, and he supports the truth of his assertion of the resurrection of Jesus by pointing to the witnesses who saw him. Or as we present the gospel, we might persuade people about the nature and reality of their sin and their plight before God and the judgment that they face before God, which provides the background or the context to explain why God in his love sent his son to die and to rise again. I guess the point is fairly straightforward, that reason and argument and persuasion, these are natural aspects, if you like, of explaining and proclaiming and commending the gospel. And we see the apostles and evangelists in the New Testament doing this often and in different ways. Is this apologetics? Well, perhaps, maybe not as such, although it sometimes comes close, doesn't it? Apologetics, strictly speaking, is a defense of something or someone. An apologia is your answer to someone's objection or accusation. That's what the word means. If you're explaining to someone why your message is true and trustworthy, are you defending it? Well, I guess in a manner of speaking, you could say you are. It's certainly interesting that when Paul makes his defense or apologia of his ministry and of himself in Acts 26... He really ends up preaching a gospel sermon. In any case, whether or not we want to stretch the label of apologetics and apply it to this kind of persuasive, well-reasoned gospel proclamation, well, let's just agree that that kind of persuasion is a good thing. So that's type of interaction number one that sometimes, or at least is close to, apologetics. Number two, which I've labelled answering objections, is kind of where apologetics really lives, classically speaking. You preach or put forward your explanation of the gospel, an objection or some kind of accusation or question comes back, and you respond. It's the kind of thing we find in 1 Peter 3.15, where Christians are called on to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And I guess this presupposes that the person knows that you have a hope in you. You've already spoken to them of your hope in some sort of way. And they ask you for a reason. They ask you to defend or explain this hope that you have. And we also see this to some extent in Acts, where Paul makes his defense, as we've seen already, against the accusations that are leveled against him and by implication against the gospel that he preaches. 
So apologetics in this sense, or this kind of apologetics, is very much responsive. It comes after evangelism, if you like, which is why I've positioned it right up towards the right-hand side of the evangelism zone on the diagram. This kind of apologetics, and I guess this is really apologetics in its pure and simple form, answers the questions and objections and accusations that are raised against the truth of the gospel. People might ask, for example, how do you know that these historical truths that you're proclaiming actually happened? And this is where evidential apologetics often comes in, defending the historical reliability of scripture or the truthfulness of the gospel accounts and so on. Or people might say, isn't this message that you're preaching socially harmful or politically destructive? Or perhaps, if Jesus is Lord of all, what about those who've never heard of him? How will they be judged? Or perhaps, if God is supposedly so powerful and loving in sending and raising Jesus from the dead, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Or again, if sinners are going to be judged, does that mean that all the gay and trans people are going to hell? And so on and so forth. Now, a very underappreciated but marvellous little book on this topic is Kel Richard's book, Defending the Gospel. It's one of the best examples of this kind of classic defensive apologetics that I know of. It works its way through the main points of the gospel and shows how at each point there are good answers available to meet the common questions and objections that people raise at each point. It's a marvellous little book, Defending the Gospel by Kel Richards. So that's apologetics type two, probably the closest thing to pure and actual apologetics in this list. It's where you just answer the questions and objections and defend the gospel against the accusations and objections that are levelled against it. But there's a third type that's related to this that I've called preemptive objections. And on the diagram, therefore, I've kind of moved and positioned that one right at the very beginning of the evangelize process or the evangelism zone. Because in practice, we sometimes try to deal with these common objections that people raise before we get to actually proclaiming the gospel itself. We assume that our hearers already have objections because they've already been exposed to some version of Christianity or Christian teaching, and they already have their reasons for rejecting it or objecting to it. Now, strong versions of these existing objections are sometimes called defeater beliefs these days. That is, existing beliefs or objections that kind of defeat or rule out the truth of the gospel before we've even started to explain it. It's as if the person says, I don't have to listen to you and your gospel. I've already dismissed all this stuff because of X. And X could be things like these. It could be, science has disproved God. I don't need to listen any further. Or, my life is quite fine without God and Christianity. And even if they were true, I really have no need of them. Or it could be, no normal, rational, moral, modern person can believe in Christianity or the Christian gospel. We've outgrown all that. Or it might be, Jesus I'm interested in, possibly, but Christianity and the church, they're so poisonous and horrible and harmful that I just have no interest in listening to you. Now, these kind of strong pre-existing or preemptive objections that people may have 
the first half of Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, is an excellent example of meeting these kind of objections and diffusing them. Uh, he preemptively deals with some of these common defeater beliefs before turning to the gospel itself in the second half of the book. An even better example of doing this, in my view, I think because it does a significantly better job of the gospel bit in the second half of the book, is Martin Ayres' little book called Naked God. Naked God by Martin Ayres. Now, preemptive apologetics of this kind is really valuable, but it's also not without its risks. The person you're speaking to, for example, may not in fact have the objection or objections that you're answering. And all you've done by leading with those objections is waste their time and possibly put an objection in their mind that they hadn't previously ever even thought about. It also kind of puts us on the back foot, doesn't it, from the outset. Rather than leading with the positive message that we love and are excited about, rather than leading with the gospel of Jesus, we lead with the negative reasons why this message isn't believed by some people. So it kind of puts us in a negative defensive posture to begin with. It can also end up reframing how you preach the gospel itself or how you present the message. So, for example, if you preemptively deal with the objection that Christianity has been a terrible thing for humanity and you want to argue that perhaps it has been sometimes but on the whole hasn't been, then it's very easy for Christianity and the church to become the focus of what you talk about, for that to become the focus of our message rather than Christ himself. You can end up seeking to justify the truth of the gospel on the basis of whether or not it's a net good for human society. However, I think perhaps the major risk with too much focus on what I'm calling preemptive apologetics is the risk in our own heads that we start to believe that if we can just clear away these objections, then voila, our hearers will accept the truth of the gospel and believe. We need to keep trusting what the Bible tells us about the people we're seeking to reach and evangelize, that the underlying basis for unbelief is moral and spiritual corruption. Deep down, all people know very well that God is their good and powerful creator. But we all suppress this truth and exchange it for a lie, with the result that our thinking becomes twisted and our values become compromised and distorted. This is Romans 1 I'm channeling here. Or if we want to put it in the terms of John 3, when faced with the light, people prefer the darkness because their deeds are evil. It's in this sense, I think, that we should treat people's objections and questions respectfully and courteously, but not seriously. We've got to keep remembering that the problem goes much deeper. I've written about this previously. There was a post I wrote on not taking unbelief seriously. Uh, it was a few months ago. You can find that on the website as well at thepainfultruth.online. Now, we must still persuade and give good reasons for why our proclamation is true. If Christ is not raised after all, then our faith is, is futile, as Paul says. So persuasion is important, and we can't continue to converse and persuade and interact with people without addressing their questions that they raise. But we mustn't think that answering questions and objections, whether preemptively or otherwise, 
is the key that will unlock the door of someone's heart. Or that apologetics is the necessary bridge across which the gospel needs to walk. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, not apologetics. Well, that brings us to type four and the final variety of apologetics in inverted commas that I'll cover in this post, and I'll deal with the rest next week. A key function of classic defensive apologetics, the kind that answers questions and objections to Christianity, a key function is that it builds the confidence of Christians in their faith and proclamation. So confidence-building apologetics is this fourth kind. When the world throws stones at the gospel, it's Christians who are often the ones who end up bruised. Doubts creep in. Confidence can wane. If all these smart people are rejecting the gospel and they have all these snappy one-liners and objections, then maybe I'm just naive to keep believing. Answering non-Christian objections and accusations, and in fact, showing how shallow and insubstantial they usually are, well, this brings real comfort and confidence to Christian believers. It bolsters their defences and strengthens them, not only to grasp even tighter to the gospel, but to be bold in sharing it. By defending the gospel, we defend those who put their trust in it. Well, there's a quick summary of types one to four of the seven types of, in inverted commas, apologetics, and I'll get to the rest in next week's edition. But in the meantime, feel very free to send in any thoughts or reactions so far, and I'll interact with those next week when I get to them. Thanks, of course, for the continuing stream of emails and messages that keep coming in. It's really great to keep hearing from you. One recent very encouraging message came from Beck. Uh, she wrote in response to last week's edition on how to grow left lookers. Uh, and she said this, which I thought was really nice. She said, there are two lines from your post that caught my attention. The first is where you said, people who are stuck in complacent, self-focused Christianity. This reminded me of the CBS, that's Campus Bible Study catchphrase, don't settle for middle class Australian life. This is so easy to do, and I try to challenge myself on this. But the thought that this isn't just about making sure that we don't allow our jobs or comforts to become idols, but that we also need to be actively pursuing the growth of God's people and God's kingdom, I think that comes as more of a rebuke. And that ties in, says Beck, with the second line that struck me, where you said, it is maturity in the lived practice of that knowledge. As university-trained professional types who've come through CBS can sometimes feel like having head knowledge is good enough. But if we aren't living it out visibly in our day, then are we truly mature? Or do we actually need some of that milk reminding us of the amazing gift of God's grace to see the gravity of our sin and the beauty of the cross so that we honestly desire others to know Christ and glorify God? Thanks so much for those thoughts, Beck. Very encouraging and great to hear. So do keep uh, getting in touch either by just going to the website and you can drop a comment at the end of the post there or you can send me an email at tonyjpain at me.com. Well, I think that'll just about do for this week's Painful Truth. To be continued next week, look forward to talking to you then. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.